0: I'm Kathy with a K and I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Weymouth, Massachusetts. Located about 15 miles southeast of Boston, Weymouth is the second oldest township in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. It was named after a coastal town in England from which 100 settlers arrived in 1635. For almost 200 years, Weymouth was a fishing and agricultural community, evolving into a manufacturing hub for shoes in the late 19th century. Weymouth is also the birthplace of Abigail Adams, wife of President John Adams and mother to President John Quincy Adams, one of only two women in history who can claim that title.
1: And who is the other?
0: Barbara Bush, who was wife to our 41st president, George H.W. Bush, and mother to our 43rd president, George W. Bush. Abigail Adams' childhood home still stands in Weymouth and is open to the public for tours. Now with a population of almost 60,000 residents, Weymouth is considered one of Boston's most affordable suburbs, allowing residents to go into Boston each day for work, but return home each night to an idyllic town in which they raise their families. But in 1993, the murder of a local teenager shattered the image of this bucolic community and left one family impatiently waiting for justice.
1: In January of 1993, 17-year-old Jennifer Mullen was a senior at Weymouth High School. She lived with her father, John Mullen Jr., a Weymouth firefighter, and her mother, Marion, who worked at a local bank. Her 18-year-old brother, Joseph, was away at college in Ohio at the time. On the night of January 29th, Jennifer went to a party thrown by 18-year-old Mary Reed, who was a close friend and lived about 10 blocks away. Jennifer's parents gave her a 12:30 curfew, and when she did not arrive home by 1 a.m., her mother called Mary's apartment looking for Jennifer. Mrs. Mullen was told that Jennifer left the party and nobody knew where she was, but she figured her daughter would be home soon. When Jennifer was not home the next morning, her parents and friends began making more phone calls looking for her. After searches turned up no leads on where she was, Jennifer's parents filed a missing persons report with the Weymouth Police Department around 4 p.m. Less than a half hour later, a resident in the neighboring town of Rockland, about six miles away from Jennifer's home, discovered Jennifer's body in a wooded area on his property. She was lying on her back, partially covered by pine needles, and her head was turned to the left. There were bruises on her forehead above her left eye, and the redness of her face indicated that force had been applied to her neck. Notably, her lipstick was not smeared, but her blouse was pulled off her left shoulder, and two of her buttons in the middle of the blouse had been torn off. Her pants were buttoned, but the zipper was open and broken. One leg of her pantyhose had been torn completely off, and one of her boots was missing.
0: The next day, on January 31, 1993, journalist Joseph Malia, reporting for the Patriot-Ledger, wrote that investigators did not yet know whether Jennifer had been killed where they found her or somewhere else. The ground was covered in pine needles, which meant that footprints and drag marks would be easily concealed. Police assumed whoever was involved in Jennifer's death knew the area because the wooded lot where Jennifer's body was found was not visible from a major road. Rockland Police Chief Kevin Donovan also said that Jennifer may have had friends in the area because neighbors told police that they had seen her before. Plymouth County District Attorney William O'Malley said the autopsy revealed that Jennifer had been strangled. It appeared that the killer grabbed Jennifer around the throat to strangle her and did not use a weapon. When her body was found, she was missing her coat, her purse, one earring, and one boot. Police questioned dozens of Jennifer's friends at Weymouth High School, as well as people who attended the party. Weymouth police also spoke with William Jewett, who went by Bill, who was the last known person to see Jennifer after the party. Bill told investigators that sometime before 1 a.m., he offered to drive Jennifer home. His car, which was a 17-year-old blue Chevy Malibu, would not start, so a friend of the party jump-started it. They were able to get the car started, but it kept backfiring. So to make sure the car did not break down on the way to Jennifer's home, the friend followed Bill and Jennifer in his truck. After following Bill's car, the two vehicles went their separate ways. When police asked Bill to let them search his car, he fully cooperated and immediately turned the car over to authorities.
1: In the same article by journalist Joseph Malia, Jennifer's friends described her as a sweet girl who preferred parties to schoolwork and wanted to be a model. Classmates described her as very quiet, but on the weekends, she would always be found at a party. Mark Milligan, who lived next door to the Mullins for 12 years, said Jennifer was quiet and sweet, but she hung out with a rebel crowd. She cared about school and was smart, but if her friends cut class, she would follow. And they liked to party, so she partied with them. Richard Steele, the principal of Weymouth High School, was quoted in this article as saying that during Jennifer's sophomore year, she was in a graphic arts program at a vocational technical school, but that didn't work out for her, so she went back to the regular high school program for her junior year. Three days after Jennifer's murder, on February 2, 1993, District Attorney William O'Malley announced that investigators had searched Bill Jewett's vehicle and found no evidence linking him to her murder. Bill was then dismissed as a suspect. That same day, about 30 of Jennifer's friends and classmates gathered just a few feet from where her body was found in Rockland and held a vigil in her memory. Since it was January in Massachusetts, the temperature was freezing and there was a little bit of snow on the ground. But that didn't stop her friends from being there to remember Jennifer. They stood shoulder to shoulder and lit candles as they remembered her as a free-spirited, easygoing, and very trusting person.
0: I have a friend who lost her sibling in a motorcycle accident and a memorial was put up at the place where he died. And for me, I was really surprised at that. But it turns out that she and her family, especially her mother, find great peace and solace going to this location. In fact, one of their friends actually put up a bench so that my friend's mother can sit there and feel like she's with her son. Oh, wow. Being the last place that he was alive. You know, it's funny
1: because every road trip I go on, you see these things. And in my head, I just think, oh, how sad. Somebody died there. Like you just kind of say a quick prayer and travel on your way. Right. Right. But it would be meaningful to family members that others took the time and placed a cross or flowers or candles or whatever.
0: One of Jennifer's friends, Kristen Higgins, said that no matter what, Jennifer always made her smile every single time she talked to her. Kristen knew she would never meet anyone like Jennifer again and no one would ever take her place. Mary Reed, who was the person hosting the party the night Jennifer disappeared and one of Jennifer's closest friends, said that Jennifer was not afraid of anything and wondered if Jennifer even knew what was happening when she was killed. Mary placed a lone lit candle in the snow that she said represented Jennifer, and Mary and all of Jennifer's friends gathered around the candle and said a prayer for her. Then they passed around a small bell for each person to ring. Mary explained that Jennifer loved the sound of bells and loved music. In fact, she said Jennifer always wondered what heaven would be like and if Jim Morrison would be there.
1: Join me. Nope. Come on, baby, <laughs> let my fire.
0: <laughs> I think Kathy's trying to get an audition of some sort. At oh, this yeah.
1: Nails on a chalkboard.
0: <laughs> Mary said that she and all of Jennifer's friends needed to believe that Jennifer was happy now. And Mary had organized the vigil as a chance to remember all of the good things about Jennifer. Those of us who know her want her to be remembered as someone who made us laugh and smile, even during the worst of times.
1: Jennifer's funeral was held two days later on February 4, 1993, at St. Francis Xavier Church in Weymouth. More than 400 mourners were present, including many of her friends and classmates. In fact, the high school gave all students permission to leave class for the funeral.
0: Do you know when my dad died, I was in elementary school? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know that. But they actually brought in substitute teachers for all of the teachers to be able to attend.
1: No way. My
0: dad had been president of, it was akin to the PTA. It was just called something different. But he'd been president of that for probably four or five years at that point. And, you were kidding me. Uh-uh. And then,
1: I never knew that. Really? But, you never told me that.
0: Okay. You always keep secrets. I totally do. <laughs> it was amazing because my dad was one of those people who everybody just loved. Mm-hmm. He loved telling stories. He was hysterical. Everybody liked being around him. And what they did after that is behind the backstop on the athletic field, mm-hmm. there's actually a tree planted there. You've got to be kidding. No, and how it's still there. did you never there. tell me this before? I don't know. Oh I don't my know God. how you didn't know that. But the tree is still there to this because day. Because you never told
1: me. That is so cool. <laughs> that is really, really cool. So for Jennifer, many of the students carried long stem red roses. As you would expect, especially in a small town, many of the teenagers in attendance had gone to school with her their whole lives. When the hearse arrived and the coffin was carried inside the church, a bagpiper played the song, Going Home. Jennifer's mother carried a large stuffed teddy bear and other mementos of her daughter. There was also a significant presence from Mr. Mullen's colleagues from the fire department. On the day of Jennifer's funeral, the Firefighters Union announced that it had established a scholarship fund in her name that would be used to help graduating Weymouth High School seniors further their education.
0: Almost three weeks after Jennifer's death, Plymouth County District Attorney William O'Malley spoke about the results of medical tests that had been conducted on Jennifer's body. According to the DA, the tests failed to determine whether Jennifer was raped before she was strangled to death. O'Malley called the results ambiguous and inconclusive. However, he did share that tests showed that Jennifer had a blood alcohol level of 0.10, which is usually the legal limit to determine if somebody is driving under the influence by most states. By this time, police had questioned hundreds of people but had not come up with any evidence or leads to help pinpoint Jennifer's killer. A police spokesman said they were no closer to an arrest than the day Jennifer was murdered. On March 11, 1993, so we're about six weeks after Jennifer was killed, the Patriot Ledger reported that a $5,000 reward was being offered anonymously for anyone who could lead police to an arrest and conviction.
1: By the way, on a personal note, I like when people donate anonymously I agree. to reward funds. Right.
0: Because I, they're not doing it for the glory or for yeah, the attention. You're just in it to help the family. Rockland Police Captain Rodney Rumble said that they believed someone knew something about who killed Jennifer and the police wanted them to come forward. The reward offer at the time was only good for 30 days.
1: I also like when they do that. They put a cap on it and they sort of try to light a fire under people.
0: Right. You don't get to pick this up in July. You got to get the money now. Mm -hmm. Rockland police chief Kevin Donovan said he believed the murderer likely confided to a family member or friend and may have even had an accomplice and whoever the killer told may be fearing retribution or that someone close to them would be hurt. So Rockland police would protect the anonymity of anyone coming forward with information. Almost six weeks after the reward was announced, the Mullen family and the Rockland Police Association announced on April 28, 1993, that they were adding $2,000 to the existing $5,000 reward with the hope it would persuade someone to come forward. Now, remember, this was supposed to be a 30-day reward. Clearly, it had been extended. At the time, Mrs. Mullen said that her family was very frustrated that Jennifer's case remained unsolved after three months. And increasing the reward was another way to keep it in the public eye. So around middle of May of 1993, Jennifer's 18-year-old brother, Joseph, who had actually returned home from college by this point, he was elected to town meeting in Weymouth. Not a town meeting, not the town meeting. I actually had to look this up because, you know, I'm all things political. Yeah,
1: you're totally political, political, Marie.
0: Exactly. I'd never heard of this before. But a town meeting is kind of similar to a city council or a board of aldermen, which mm-hmm. I actually had to look that up too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they have that in Chicago, I think. Exactly. But anyway, they do. They absolutely yeah. do.
0: So in the town that has this form of government, town meetings decide three major things. They set the salaries for the elected officials. They vote to appropriate money to run the town. And they vote on the town's local statutes, which they actually call bylaws. And the members who are elected to town meetings actually run in set precincts. And they're elected by ballot at the annual town election.
1: Oh, my God. That's awesome.
0: All of the town's voters may vote for what are called town meeting members. And then after the voters elect these town meeting members, it is that day that the town meeting members conduct and vote on the rest of the town meetings business.
1: Oh, my gosh. Isn't that crazy? That's a lot of responsibility.
0: So Jennifer's brother, Joseph, told reporters that he'd wanted to be a politician since grade school. And as much as I love politics, that was never me. I didn't get into it until college. Right. But it was actually Jennifer's murder that caused Joseph to become what he called a law and order candidate and prompted him to run to be elected to town meeting. He's 19 at this point? Yes, that's incredible. It really is. He also said he would push to improve schools. He believed that students would stay in school and do better in Weymouth if the town spent more money on audiovisual equipment, sports, science labs, and other programs Remember, Jennifer had actually left high school and gone to a vocational school exactly. because she was kind of trying to find her niche. Trying to figure it out. And I think that's what he was doing. And I love the fact that he's young and he's
1: actually looking back on high school, a very recent graduate. One year
0: prior. Yep. And saying, we need to change this. Yeah, I agree. That's pretty cool. But I wonder if the old fuddy-duddies at town meeting actually listened to him. Like me. I would have been been like, (laughs) what's he talking about? We don't don't need
1: need that. We don't need audiovisual equipment. (laughs) (laughs) When did you
0: start talking like your (laughs) great-grandma? I'll talk
1: like my mom. Kathy, they don't need audiovisual equipment. Don't let your mom listen to this.
0: Exactly, <laughs> She hates it when Kathy <laughs> imitates her.
1: <laughs> Which I can't stop doing for some reason. <laughs> Joseph told the Patriot ledger that this was only the beginning and people would be hearing a lot more from him and believe that he would one day like to run for governor. Joseph had just finished his first year at Denison University in Ohio and said he planned to run for selectmen when he graduated from college in three years. He also said he wanted to attend law school at Boston College or Boston University and then run for a seat in the state legislature.
0: You know, what's interesting, Kathy, though, is that he never went back to Denison University. He actually went to a college in Rhode Island.
1: Yeah, I did notice that later.
0: I never saw this. I can't verify this, but I feel like it was because he needed to be closer to his parents. That
1: would be 100 percent my guess, but I didn't read that anywhere. Joseph said that his sister's unsolved murder made him aware of the problems teenagers have to face and wanted to change things by advocating for a crime prevention program. Mrs. Mullen thought Jennifer would be very proud of her brother, Joseph.
0: Interestingly, Kathy, Joseph said that Jennifer's death increased his support for the death penalty. He said he'd never had this view prior to Jennifer's murder, but as a result of what happened to his sister, he saw it in a whole different light. He said murder does more than just bring a violent end to one person's life. It affects the whole family and the whole town.
1: You know, Kath, I'm sure that's a very common experience. Somebody who has a murder close to them or, I mean, honestly, any kind of violent crime, you see it from a whole new perspective with empathy for the families. And again, it just reverberates within the community. On June 4th, 1993, in the Patriot Ledger, Jennifer's parents spoke with journalist Joseph Malia. The interview took place a few days before it would have been Jennifer's 18th birthday And it was the parents' first interview with the press. Mr. and Mrs. Mullen talked about how they had dealt with the pain of their daughter's murder over the past four months. They shared that Jennifer's favorite flowers were lilies and roses, and that she liked teddy bears and Marlboro cigarettes. These were some of the items Jennifer's friends left behind when they visited her grave.
0: You know, another thing that they left at the grave, the parents had left a journal so that whoever visited, they could write in it. Oh, that's neat. And her friends did. And actually, the friends filled one journal pretty much every year.
1: Oh, wow. Isn't that nice? That's very cool. I like that. Mrs. Mullen said that other than changing the sawdust in the cage of Jennifer's hamster, she had not touched anything in her daughter's room, including not washing her laundry.
0: It's interesting to me, Kathy, what people hang on to after somebody they love has died. Whether it's tragically like Jennifer being murdered or whether it's just somebody passing away who you weren't expecting to, but of different circumstances. Yeah. And it's actually whatever they had the connection to, like the teddy bear that Mrs. Mullen went to the funeral with. Exactly. Well,
1: it's funny because when I read Marlboro cigarettes, every time I see a pack of Marlboros, I think of my grandmother. Is that how you pronounce them? I call them Marlboros. They're not Marlboros? Well, I mean, who says Marlboros? I don't know. Apparently I do. I call them Marlboros. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what they are. All right, Smoker Marie.
0: Tell us more.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, but seriously, like my grandma started smoking when she was, I don't know, in her teens and she lasted until she was 87 smoking her entire life. So when my sisters and I would go visit her at some point, she was in an old age home and my mom would be like. Kathy, don't forget your grandma's Marlboros. Bring her a carton.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So it's, hi, Grandma, good to see you. Here's a carton. Exactly.
1: And so she would give us 20 bucks. We'd stop at a liquor store and buy my grandma a carton, a huge carton of Marlboros, which was funny because now that would probably cost $4,000 in California. (laughs) But back then it was not. It was 20 bucks. Exactly. Funny side story, my sisters, Loretta and Helen, and I go to visit my grandmother. Now, my grandmother is named Helen. She's sitting at this table with two old ladies, and she introduces us. She's like, these are my granddaughters. And she says to my sisters and I, this is my friend Catherine and this is my friend Loretta. So it was Catherine,
0: Loretta, Helen there. <laughs> exactly.
1: My sisters and I looked at each other like we had just been punched in the gut. Like, oh, my God, this is our
0: future. But that's not a bad future. She's at an old age home, but she's surrounded by her friends She was actually fun.
1: She was pretty happy. And she was sharing her cigarettes.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Even better. You wouldn't do that. Well, you'd share, but you wouldn't share your moon pies. <laughs> Or my chocodiles. (laughs) Shout out to Jennifer with a J in Chattanooga who sent us moon pies. Exactly. Who sent
1: us moon pies. And the minute the box was open, I started eating the moon pies. I literally didn't have
0: one. Yeah, I know. I know.
1: (laughs) I had enough for four or five people.
0: In the interview with the Patriot Ledger, Mr. and Mrs. Mullins said they were both angry that Jennifer's killer remained free and pleaded for anyone who knew anything about Jennifer's murder to come forward. Mrs. Mullins said it was cold-blooded, premeditated murder. You do not choke somebody by accident. If you hit someone in an act of rage or shoot someone, that is one thing. But it takes a long time to strangle the life out of someone. The Mullins revealed that Rockland police detective Richard Craig called them once or twice a week, assuring them that he would make an arrest as soon as enough evidence was gathered. Mr. Mullins said when an arrest is finally made, it will stick. The Mullins also reminded the public of the $7,000 reward, and Mrs. Mullins said, please, if you have any shred of decency, call the police or call our lawyer. In early September 1993, so we're now more than seven months after Jennifer's murder, police said they did not have enough evidence to make an arrest or seek a grand jury indictment. At the very beginning of the investigation, detectives focused on Bill Jewett. Remember, this was the young man who drove Jennifer home on the night she was killed but the police found nothing to connect him with Jennifer's murder. Authorities said there were maybe a half a dozen people that they were looking at at this time, and one of the people who the police looked at seriously was a friend of Bill Jewett's, a man named Brian Mon. In an affidavit filed at Wareham District Court on January 31, 1993, so this is the day after Jennifer's body was found, state police trooper Scott Burnham referred to Brian Mon without naming him. In the affidavit, Trooper Burnus said that Bill Jewett was familiar with the Turner Road area where Jennifer was found because his friend, referring to Brian Mon but not naming him in the affidavit, lived near there. In addition, Bill's mother had gone to school with Brian's mother, and they were friends as well. Now, this is something that Mrs. Jewett, Bill's mother, first confirmed when she spoke with detectives. Brian lived about 12 houses away from the wooded lot where Jennifer's body was found. However, There was no evidence that tied Brian to Jennifer's murder, and no other leads presented themselves.
1: District Attorney William O'Malley said that the sad truth was that some murders are never solved. But he also said this case was given the highest priority in his office. DA O'Malley said the fact that an investigation is not successful doesn't mean investigators had not tried hard enough or committed enough resources or had cared enough. And State Police Lieutenant Bruce Gordon said the investigation was still active. For the first few days, at least 12 state troopers worked on the case before handing it over to Trooper Berna and Rockland Detective Sergeant Richard Craig. But Lieutenant Gordon pointed out that as the months passed, there is a limit to what investigators could do. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone. And so do you.
0: As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered.
1: And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation.
0: They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app.
1: Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit RosettaStone.com/today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at RosettaStone.com/today today. Close to three years after Jennifer's murder on November 1st, 1995. Journalist Neil Porter Brown wrote in the Patriot Ledger that a grand jury would start investigating her murder and that officials had a list of almost 120 witnesses who could potentially be called to testify over the next several months. Now, remember, Calf, in grand juries, people are subpoenaed. It's a process that's secret, you know, but you at least have the juice of a subpoena behind you as a prosecutor. So, Calf, by this time, they have a new district attorney. Plymouth County District Attorney Michael Sullivan would not confirm to Journalist Brown that a grand jury would look at Jennifer's case, but he did hint that his office was doing all it could to make an arrest, saying that Jennifer Mullen's case was an open investigation and his office was using all of the tools available to them, one of them obviously being impaneling a grand jury. In the article, Mrs. Mullen was quoted as saying that she heard rumors about a grand jury probe ever since Jennifer was killed almost three years prior, and she hoped to see it happen. Jennifer's brother, Joseph, who was now attending college in Rhode Island, said that it was about time and that it should have been done before, but he was glad to see progress in the case. In an interview on the fourth anniversary of Jennifer's murder in January of 1997, Mrs. Mullen said she was the first person to testify before the grand jury in November of 1995 and was frustrated that the process had not gone faster and really thought that there would have been an arrest by this time. It was revealed in the same article that Jennifer's parents got divorced after her death. Journalist Brown spoke with Jennifer's father in a separate interview And Mr. Mullen was critical of the police and unsatisfied with the way things were handled. But he said he thinks of Jennifer every day, remembering her smile and her brightness.
0: Kathy, what was really interesting to me is that the day after this article ran Mm -hmm. that included the interview with Mrs. Mullen, the next day in the Patriot Ledger, there was a section in the obituaries that was entitled In Memoriam. Mm -hmm. So I guess there were people who took out ads in there talking about a loved one they had lost. And I actually just kind of stumbled across it, but it was an in memoriam that said, in loving memory of Jennifer Mullen. It was written by her dad, and it said, Dear Jennifer, it's been four years since you were taken away from us for no reason. But to me, it seems like only yesterday that you were here. A day does not pass that you are not on my mind. You get me through the day, but I'll never get over it. I know you have a friend with you. Watch over us. I miss and love you, Dad. And that broke my heart. On October 6, 1997, so this is more than four and a half years after Jennifer was murdered, Boston Globe journalist Jason Praying reported that authorities had arrested someone for Jennifer's murder. It was the person to last see Jennifer alive on the night she was killed, William Jewett Jr. According to Plymouth County District Attorney Michael Sullivan, Jewett was arrested as he was getting off a bus in Weymouth on his way home from work. He was charged with raping and murdering Jennifer Mullen. The arrest followed an exhaustive investigation that included work by a then-newly-formed state police cold case unit, which I thought was actually interesting, Kath, because it's only been four years. Right. But good for them. Exactly. With the renewed effort in looking into the case, thousands of hours of investigative work went into proving who killed Jennifer. The grand jury, as you'll recall, started hearing evidence in Jennifer's murder case in November of 1995, but secret indictments were not handed down until two years later, which was October 6, 1997. District Attorney Sullivan said the grand jury heard evidence from 47 witnesses and police officers who interviewed about 200 witnesses. Jennifer's family expressed relief that the nightmare of not knowing who killed her might be finally coming to an end. Mrs. Mullen said that the family was excited and overwhelmed. She said, there are no words to express what we're feeling. It's the beginning of closure. She also said she was grateful to District Attorney Sullivan, and particularly to Detective Sergeant Richard Craig with the Rockland Police Department. Detective Craig was the first police officer to discover Jennifer's body in 1993, and it was that night that he promised Mr. and Mrs. Mullen that he would never give up never retire until Jennifer's killer was arrested. And Detective Sergeant Craig kept his promise. Joseph Mullen, Jennifer's brother, was a first-year law student at this point and said his exposure to the criminal investigation inspired his goal of becoming a prosecutor when he finished law school.
1: The day after Jewett was arrested, on October 7, 1997, he pleaded not guilty at his arraignment. His attorney, Marnell Tagrin, said he was baffled that prosecutors were suddenly pressing charges after four and a half years of investigation and two years of presenting evidence to a grand jury. What did they think they had that they didn't have two or three years ago? Prosecutor Paul Dolly planned to argue for Jewett to be held without bail until trial, but attorney Tagrin asked for time to meet with his client and review the charges. Tagrin told reporters that his client had cooperated fully with the investigators since the murder, including allowing them to search his car, providing several statements, and voluntarily submitting a DNA sample. Attorney Tagrin said Jewett joined the Army 10 months earlier in January, but that he received a general discharge six months later. Sources later said that Jewett was discharged because he had an outstanding drunk driving charge in New Hampshire, which prevented him from being transferred overseas.
0: So, Kath, knowing you're an attorney and, you know, I play one on TV. Right. <laughs> but I thought it was really interesting because Joseph Mullen, Jennifer's brother, is in law school at this point. Mm-hmm. And during this hearing, when Jewett was first led into the courtroom, Joseph applauded and was immediately admonished by court officers for his outburst. Right. But then when Jewett was led out of the courtroom after entering his plea, Joseph yelled, yes and raised his hand in a fist.
1: Oh, I'm sure he was probably admonished again.
0: Yeah, I'm sure I didn't say he was, but I have no doubt.
1: There was some clanking in the background. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody could quite identify the source of the noise.
0: (laughs) And you weren't there, so I understand.
1: (laughs) As a side note, Mr. Mullen spoke with Bill Jewett on the night of the party. So at some point through the course of phone calls, he and his wife find out that their daughter actually left with a classmate who was a couple years older than Jennifer named Bill Jewett. Dad finds out this guy's home number. So he calls and he talks to Bill and he's like, hey, where's my daughter? I thought you gave her a ride home from the party. So he tells Jennifer's dad that he did not drop Jennifer off in front of the house, but rather left her at the end of the street so that she could finish the beer that she was drinking before she got home. But frankly, with teenagers, that sounds like a true story.
0: Yeah, it absolutely does. Yeah.
1: Two and a half months after Bill Jewett's arrest on December 12, 1997, Assistant District Attorney Paul Dolly revealed at a bail hearing that a piece of thread ripped from the blouse Jennifer was wearing the night she was killed was found on the front seat of Jewett's car. He also said that pine needles that covered Jennifer's body were believed to be the same as those found on the floor of Jewett's vehicle.
0: Okay, so what doesn't make sense to me, Kath, is that do you remember that police said three days after inspecting Jewett's car that there was nothing there linking him to Jennifer's murder?
1: I know, but at the same time, whatever he was telling the police was not inconsistent with these pine needles and this thread being in his vehicle because he admitted that she was in the car. So at the bail hearing, the DA revealed publicly for the first time that semen found in Jennifer's underwear matched Jewett's DNA and that evidence had been presented to the grand jury. Prosecutor Dolly said that when Jewett was first asked by investigators about sexual contact with Jennifer, he denied it. But once he was told that they had a DNA match to semen found on her clothing, he changed his story to say that they had consensual sex. Jewett's defense attorney, Robert Jubinville, asked that his client be released on $10,000 bail. Superior Court Judge Suzanne DelVecchio denied the request.
0: On November 16, 1998, almost six years after Jennifer Mullen was raped and murdered, trial began in Brockton Superior Court with a selection of 10 women and six men who would serve as the 12-member jury and four alternates. That same day, the newly seated jurors went on a two hour bus tour through Rockland and Weymouth, including the site where Jennifer's body was found in January of 1993. Judge Delvecchio, Assistant District Attorneys Paul Dolly and Frank Gazziano, as well as Jewett's defense attorney Robert Jubenville, accompanied the jurors on the tour. The next day, during opening statements, prosecutor Frank Gaziano said William Jewett, who was 19 at the time, made sexual advances toward Jennifer after they left the party and she told him no. Gaziano said Jewett then raped Jennifer and killed her when she threatened to tell her father. Also during opening statement, prosecutor Gaziano said Jewett confessed to a fellow inmate that he had killed Jennifer and provided details of Jennifer's murder. The inmate, named Mark Obershaw, would provide details during the trial. Jewett's defense attorney, Robert Jubinville, told the jury during his opening statement that his client admitted to hiding Jennifer's body but did not kill her. Jubinville said that William Jewett had consensual sex with Jennifer and became terrified when she died inexplicably, leading Jewett to hide her body out of fear. Jubinville also said the testimony from fellow inmate Mark Obershaw was unreliable and self-serving, calling Obershaw a pathological liar. Jubinville also said it was a disgrace that the DA's office was using him in the trial because Obershaw frequently wrote letters to the district attorney's office claiming he had information on various cases in exchange for leniency in his murder case. Obershaw was in jail awaiting trial on charges of bludgeoning his brother to death.
1: According to court records, during the first day of testimony on November 18, 1998, three residents of Turner Road where Jennifer's body was found testified that they saw an automobile with a single male occupant traveling on Turner Road between 2 and 3 a.m. Two other residents heard an automobile backfiring at around that same time. Jewett's friends testified that on the morning after the party, Jewett told them he hoped nothing had happened to Jennifer because, quote, he did not have an alibi, unquote. Friends also testified that for two days after the party, Jewett was nervous, pacing, and agitated, and denied to them, as he initially did to the police, that he had ever had sexual intercourse with Jennifer. Inmate Mark Obershaw, also known as the Snitch. That's right. Okay. Then took the stand and testified that he met Jewett in the Plymouth County Jail in October of 1997, and they became friends while playing poker and basketball together. Within a couple of months of their meeting, Obershaw said that Jewett confessed to the killing, telling him that Jennifer refused at the last minute to have sex with him and that he had sexual intercourse with her anyway. When he finished, Jennifer started yelling that he had raped her and she was going to tell her father. Obershaw also testified that Jewett, first telling Obershaw that the strangulation was an accident, later told him he had to strangle Jennifer to prevent rape charges. Jewett then told Obershaw he put the body in the trunk of his car and drove to a street where one of his best friends lived because he knew a spot where he could hide the body.
0: Dr. William Zane, the state medical examiner, testified that Jennifer died of asphyxia due to strangulation. Based on the bruises on her neck, he concluded she was strangled by someone's hands, not with a rope or cord, and determined that Jennifer died about 1.30 a.m. He also testified that Jennifer's body had probably been moved to the Turner Road site where she was found after her death. In addition, Dr. Zane testified that the semen recovered from Jennifer's underwear revealed a high probability that it had come from Jewett and Jewett could also not be excluded as the source of the semen recovered from elsewhere on her body, though analysis of that semen was inconclusive. Defense attorney Robert Jubinville brought another jail inmate to the stand, a man named Jose Linares, to prove fellow inmate Mark Obershaw was lying when he testified for the prosecution that Jewett confessed to him and that Obershaw was only repeating information he gleaned from the newspaper. Linares testified that he was close friends with Jewett, but Jewett never told him the details about Jennifer Mullen's murder. Linares also testified that Obershaw was found going through other inmates' legal paperwork to find out details about their cases. Defense attorney Jubinville reiterated what he told the jury during his opening statement that Obershaw was perjuring himself in an attempt to reduce his possible sentence. This prompted ADA Dolly to show a written contract between his office and Obershaw that stated Obershaw's charges would not be reduced for cooperating in the trial, but rather he would be allowed to serve his time in an out-of-state prison to avoid possible retribution. Bill Jewett did not testify in his own defense.
1: On November 23, 1998, almost six years after Jennifer Mullen was raped and murdered, the jury deliberated for four hours before finding William Jewett Jr., now 25 years old, guilty of first-degree murder and rape. He was given a mandatory life sentence without the possibility of parole for the murder charge and an additional 19 to 20 years for the rape charge to be served concurrently, so at the same time. In her victim impact statement, Jennifer's mother remembered Jennifer when she was born three months premature, weighing only one and a half pounds. She said the family thought Jennifer would die before her life even began, but she did not. Mrs. Mullen then said, Mr. Jewett, she did not survive you. Reached at home after the verdict was read, Mrs. Mullen said she was happy that her daughter could finally rest in peace. She also said that there were no winners after the verdict. Mr. and Mrs. Jewett also lost something that day. But they can go to prison to see their son on weekends and holidays, and she would never see Jennifer again. After the verdict, Jennifer's father said he was content with the jury's decision. In his victim impact statement, Jennifer's father had said, may you rot in hell the rest of your life. A first-degree murder conviction automatically gets appealed to the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. That's what it's called there. In May of 2003, while his appeal was pending, Jewett filed a motion in state court for a new trial, raising many items justifying the request. Among his claims was that certain evidence, which was provided to the defense before trial, showed that the sperm found on Jennifer was 24 to 36 hours old. This, asserted Jewett, supported a theory that he and the victim had consensual sex. Jewett argued this evidence, which the defense did not use at trial, undermined the prosecution's theory that he committed the murder to cover up the rape of Jennifer. Jewett also made a related argument that his trial counsel was ineffective in failing to develop and present to the jury this evidence that the sperm was deposited 24 to 36 hours before Jennifer's death. He also argued the trial court had erred in admitting physician opinion testimony that the victim had been sexually assaulted, and it was an error not objected to at trial. In a ruling handed down on August 12, 2004, in a unanimous decision, the Supreme Judicial Court rejected Jewett's arguments and refused to order a new trial and affirm Jewett's conviction and sentencing. So fast forward 18 years to August 8th, 2022, just a few days before we are recording this podcast. In an article in the Patriot Ledger by journalist Jessica Trufant, it was announced that William Jewett Jr. may be eligible for parole based on a recent ruling by a Massachusetts Superior Court judge. So, Kath, basically there were two individuals, Jason Robinson and Sheldon Mattis, Convicted of first degree murder. They were 19 years old and 18 years old at the time of their conviction. They were given a mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole because it was a first degree murder. Now, both of them had cases pending on appeal. In both of their cases, the appellate court rejected the arguments, like the substantive arguments underlying their murder convictions. However, in both of the cases, the defense attorney raised the issue hey, wait a second. Is it a violation of Massachusetts law to hold that people who are convicted of crimes between the age of 18 and 20 be sentenced to a mandatory life in prison without the possibility of parole? So there was prior case law that basically said hey, if you're under 18, you can't be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole because that constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. So Massachusetts precludes the imposition of a sentence that constitutes cruel and unusual punishment, much like the United States Constitution. So these two murders were 18 and 19, and their attorneys were saying, hey, look, it shouldn't cut off at 18. It should go to at least 20. In other words, We should not be allowed to take anyone 20 and under and mandatorily impose life in prison without the possibility of parole because it's cruel and unusual. So what the Supreme Judicial Court said was, you know what, we're going to assign this issue to a particular judge. So Judge Robert Ullman gets assigned this case. What's kind of funny is part of these hearings happened during COVID, so they were on Zoom. And he basically took testimony from four expert witnesses who talked about the development of the brain and how even if you're 19 or 20, your brain development is essentially incomplete. Based on the expert witnesses, this judge essentially held that it is cruel and unusual punishment to impose a mandatory life sentence without the possibility of parole. He wasn't excusing, according to his own words the violent murders that these young men had committed. But what he was saying was, we have to look at these cases individually. We can't mandatorily impose a life sentence without parole because their brains aren't sufficiently developed. And obviously, I am abbreviating. He wrote a very lengthy treatise. But as a consequence of this holding, a lot of cases, including William Jewett's case and about 200 other inmates might have sentences that are impacted by this.
0: So they could be resentenced and now be given the possibility of parole. Correct. In response to this ruling by Judge Ullman, Plymouth County District Attorney Timothy Cruz, so this is now the third district attorney we're talking about, Mm -hmm. said in a statement that Jewett had not filed a motion asking the Superior Court to revisit his sentencing and Judge Ullman's ruling was not binding on the rest of the state. Attorneys fully expected this to be appealed up to the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, at which point it could affect all of them. But as for now, it only affects these two men who were part of this appeal.
1: Right. And it could potentially go to the United States Supreme Court. But here's the thing, Kath, real quick. Even under this ruling, if Bill Jewett's sentencing was affected and he got a new sentencing hearing, theoretically, the judge still could order him to life in prison without the possibility of parole. This judge was trying to create a narrow focus that says it can't be mandatory.
0: Right. But you have to understand at the same time how Jennifer's family feels. Oh, yeah. And all the families that would be affected by these 200 totally inmates that are under this.
1: Totally agree.
0: So District Attorney Timothy Cruz said, If and when we receive a motion in this case, we will consult with the family of the victim and proceed with our duties in a responsible, thoughtful, and measured way. We will seek to do justice, taking into account the viciousness of this crime a horrific rape and a murder of a teenager, the loss to her family and the community of that young life, and will do so in a court of law. Joseph Mullen, who is Jennifer Mullen's brother, had a successful legal career in a myriad of positions and now works as the deputy public defender in El Paso, Texas. When news of the possible change in Jewett's sentencing reached him, he was quoted as saying, I get that people have rights and they do need to be protected, but you can't go around murdering people in cold blood and get away with it. Joseph said he thought about his sister every single day for his entire life. His mother died more than a year ago, but she and his father, who was now retired from the Weymouth Fire Department, never got over the loss of Jennifer. My dad has the biggest heart, and he lost his daughter.
1: Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. If
0: you liked us. And hopefully you did if you stayed this long. Exactly. Tell a friend. And follow us on our social media channels. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Destinations Podcast.